And we are in a two-week study before we jump into the book of Philippians uh, called The Essential Church. Um, We'll be studying that together for this week and next week. And when we are done with the two-week study, and I'll explain why we're doing this, we'll do uh, our book studies, what we like to do, expository preaching through books of the Bible. Uh, We'll be in the book of Philippians. So be reading that in your studies, um, in in your devotional time, as we look at the book of Philippians, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, keeping things in its immediate context and then looking to show uh, what, what truth not only lie behind the original context, but also how it can apply to our lives today. Expository preaching is our regular diet uh, here at King's Chapel. But today's a little bit different. Actually, today is going to be really different. Um, then, so um, bear with me as we uh, uh, go through this series called The Essential Church. Um, and one of the things, one of the things that prompted us to do this series, just a two-part series before we go into another book, is that this 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 COVID nineteen, this this pandemic has has done many things. But one of the things that has done is to force force pastors, church leaders, and church communities to think not only what is the nature and the purpose of the church, but what does a church look like uh, in our culture and in our present situation. Uh, it's been a time of growth for many of us, and many of us um, within the pastorate and the leaders in church communities have t- had to really re-examine what are we doing well, what maybe we're not doing well, as we look to the scripture to teach us about the nature and the purpose of the church. And and one of the things that prompted this, two, just a two-part study, is some of the things that are being kicked around in social media and some questions that have been kicked around social media, uh, some of them good, some of them kind of silly, i got to say. Um, like, did you know that the church is not a building? Like, yeah, I, I hope people know that by now, but maybe they don't. Or how about this one? We don't need to meet to be the church. We'll talk about that. Or, or stop going to church, just be the church. Well, some of you might have heard this from a well-known politician whose name will remain anonymous. You don't need to go to church you can do everything you're supposed to do as a Christian without meeting. Well, a few weeks ago, we did a series on the Ten Commandments. We looked at Exodus chapter 20, and we said then that we don't get to define marriage, right? Uh, we, don't, we don't decide that God created, instituted, and designed marriage, and therefore He defines marriage. And the same thing could be said about the church. We don't, we don't have the option. We don't get to define its nature or its purpose, God does. Now, methods will change. We'll get into a little bit of that. But this is really just a study of the nature and the purpose of the church. The government, the politicians, even the culture does not tell us what the nature and the purpose of the church does. God does through Scripture. In fact, all that we need to know about God, all that we need to know about God's will comes from, comes not really from speculation or supposition, but comes from revelation. God reveals himself to us and reveals his will to us, and he revealed to us the nature and the purpose of the church in Scripture. So that's kind of where we're going to go. I got a, a lot of Scripture verse. Again, I don't like jumping around the Bible, but we're going to do it a little bit over the next few days as we look at, at Scripture and what the Scripture says about the church. So what I have done is put up a definition. It's a mouthful. I'm going to tell you right now. Uh, you don't have to write it all down. I can send it to you if you need to. I picked it up somewhere along the road many, many years ago. I, I changed a little bit of it, kind of... 
to, to, to what I believe the nature of the church is. But here is a good definition of the local church from Scripture. Okay? A local church is a community of regenerated believers. They're under the headship of Christ, the authority of Scripture, who believe and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. They organize on the qualified biblical leadership, gather regularly for the preaching and teaching and worship. They observe the biblical ordinances of baptism and communion, give of their finances, their times and abilities. They're unified by the Spirit, disciplined for holiness, and scatter to fulfill the Great Commission, Matthew 28, as disciple-makers, missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. Okay? There'll be a test. I know. Didn't expect anything different from me, did you? It's a mouthful. So the good news is, well, yeah, it's going to be a hit and run. We're going to hit and run. I'm not going to, you may be sitting there going, yeah, but what about this? What about that? We don't have time unless you want to do this for the next six months, right? So it's going to be hit and run. It's going to be two weeks. And what I want to do the first week is deal with really the, the, the nature of the church per se. And here's our simple outline. It's one major outline, one major point. Um, and then we have uh, five sub points, okay? So we're going to look at the church as a community of regenerated believers and again, breaking it down, headship of Christ, authority of Scripture, what they believe and confess, how they organize, and how they gather. So that's kind of it. I'll, I'll have it I'll have it up there if you're taking notes. If not, oh, that's okay. You can send me an email and, and I could email it to you. But that, that's kind of our outline that we're going to do. Again, very different than what we're used to, staying in one book of the Bible, one verse at a time. Uh, we'll do that when we get to Philippians, uh, a couple verses at a time. So let's deal with number one. The local church is a community of regenerated believers. Now, some of you know this, some of you may not. The New Testament word, church, is, is the Greek word ekklesia. In, it's a noun. Uh, the assembly or the gathered. The verb ekklesiazo is to summon an assembly. A lot of people use the term the called out ones of God. And the ekklesia, the church in the New Testament... Um, it's never used to designate a building. It's never used to designate a certain denomination. Uh, even John the Baptist wasn't like from the Baptist church. You may not know that, but that's a free one. Okay. And, and there is a clear connection between the Old Testament word, the Hebrew word for assembly, and the New Testament word church, ecclesia. The visible church today that we see bears a clear continuity, though not identical, with the visible people of God in the Old Testament. So God's people didn't start gathering together since Christ rose from the grave, right? We're all God's covenant people. And today, we are recipients of the promises of God that he gave to Abraham, Romans 2 and Galatians 3. That is because God in his wise and eternal plans and purposes, eternal plans and purposes, always chose to display his glory not just through individuals, but through a people, right? So he didn't just create Adam. It was Adam and Eve. He didn't just save Noah. He saved several families. Genesis 12, God calls Abram, who becomes Abraham, the father of many nations. He says, go outside, look at the stars, look at the sand, you know, of the, of the seashore. That will be your descendants. In Exodus, when we looked at Exodus 20, God doesn't just deal with Moses. He deals with all of Israel and then the 12 tribes, 
And we see this people of God, thousands and thousands, millions even, uh, of people bearing one corporate identity as the people of God. In the Old Testament, Israel is called God's son. In the Old Testament, Israel is called his spouse, his vine, and his flock. And you can see, even the names in the Old Testament should sound familiar anyway, but they, they, they are, they are uh, a foreshadow of what Christ would do when he comes and through the church. So there are some similarities between the people who have assembled in the, New, in the Old Testament and similarities of those who assemble here today as New Covenant people, but there are also many distinctions and differences. And some of you who've done some theology and some thinking, think, okay, we're going to get into the, the Old Testament people, New Testament people. We're not, sorry to disappoint you, not going there today. Just to simply say there are distinctions, right? There are differences. The New Testament church is the people that have been created anew at Pentecost through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the inauguration of his kingdom, the fulfillment of God's promises that he made to the prophets, that he would, he would come and he would, create a, he, he would bring a new covenant, a better covenant. We saw this, uh, we studied in Hebrews of uh, what God said through Jeremiah and Ezekiel to have a, a new and better covenant with his people, that he will write his law on their hearts. The church today is composed of Jewish and Gentiles, people united in Christ. We are branches that abide in the true vine, in union with Christ. We're dependent upon Him. So on one hand, there's a, there's a single covenant people of God with roots in the Old Testament covenant. Yet on the other hand, the church is a new covenant, a gospel community. And unlike the Old Testament assembly, you had all kinds of people there. The New Testament church technically is made up, and I'll talk about that, of regenerated believers, born again. That's why we practice here at this church covenant membership. Great book by Jonathan Lehman called Church Membership. He uses the metaphor for the church. He says it is an, an embassy. He writes this, a church is not the kingdom. It is an outpost or embassy of that kingdom. What is an embassy, he writes? It's an institution that represents one nation inside another nation. It declares its home nation's interest to the host nation and protects the citizens of the home nation living in the host nation. Okay, we know what an embassy is. You see, the gospel is that a true king has come. And he has established and inaugurated a true kingdom. And he's beginning to make everything right. The church itself is not the kingdom of God. God's kingdom creates the church, the people of God, and works in and through the church as King Jesus reigns and rules in and over his church. And we, as the people of God, as we gather together, little by little, it's, we are supposed to show forth the glory and the mer- uh, grace and goodness and mercy of God and the way life was supposed to be, get a glimpse of the kingdom when it comes in its finality. As we love one another, we care for one another, we serve one another, we forgive one another. It's what the theologians call the already and the not yet. The already kingdom as Christ reigns in the church and the not yet is when it fully comes and is consummated in the end. Matthew 16. Verse 16. No, uh, let me start. I only put verse 16 up, but he starts at verse 12, uh, 13. Jesus, you know this passage, right? Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that the son of man is? And they said to him, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah. Some say one of the prophets. And he said to them, who do you say that I am? And good old Peter. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. 
And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosened in heaven. Notice Jesus Jesus is declaring, I will build my church. Not you, not me. Jesus said, I will build my church. You go make disciples. Notice how he will build it. On what? On the confession of Peter as the Christ. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Verse 19 talks about the kingdom because there is a king reigning over a kingdom of which he gives to the church the keys to bind on earth which is bound in heaven and loosed on earth which is loosed in heaven. By the way, the Greek uh, verbs there really should be to bind on earth what has already been bound in heaven and whatever is loosed on earth, what is already loosed in heaven. It's bringing heaven down to earth, not earth up to heaven. And binding and loosing was this rabbinical terms that was forbidding and, and permitting within uh, Judaism. Jesus picks it up. And it says the church has the keys of the kingdom, making entrance into the kingdom available through the, the proclamation, the preaching, the witness, the ministry of the gospel, heralding the gospel. It is the church that has the authority to remove members from its body. Jesus has authorized the church to, to, to hear testimonies, to, to, to listen to the confession of those, to consider life and to announce an official judgment on behalf of heaven. Now, there's no absolute in that. So that's not what I'm saying. Maybe some of you come from a Roman, background, Roman Catholic background. That's not what I'm saying. And, and it doesn't mean that the local church has uh, the power and authority to forgive sins. Only Christ does. No church forgives and saves people. Their job is to be an embassy to assure to the best of their ability heaven's citizenship and genuine regeneration. It is Christ who saves what's already been bound, having been bound uh, in heaven on earth. But that's, where, that's, that's why we have church membership. That's why you could be walking with Jesus for a thousand years, served as pastor for a hundred thousand years. I know that's an exaggeration, but you know what I mean. You have to sit with the, with the leaders of the church. We hear your testimony. That, that's what Jesus is talking about. So, so we can affirm. Now, these, this community of regenerated believers, the church, is both invisible and visible, right? It is both local and global. It's visible, invisible, local, and global. The invisible church is what God sees. He knows those, Second Timothy, who belong to him. God knows those who've been regenerated. That's the invisible church. The visible church is the gathered of people. Of what, that's the way we see it. We, we, can, we have limited understanding, but not God. The invisible church, he knows. The visible church is what we gather here. It's the way we see things. But remember also that the church is universal in the sense where every nation of every tongue, of every tribe, of every regenerated, every child of God, every people of God, of all nations, all tongues, of all generations, those who've ever been redeemed are part of the universal church. It's the word Catholic, believe it or not. Catholic means universal. God knows all those of his from all generations. But the majority of times the ecclesia, the New Testament word for church, is mentioned in the New Testament. The overwhelming majority, 
80, 85% of the time, the apostles and the writers are talking about local gatherings of folks, the local assembly. Yeah, there are times where the church is mentioned Local and global, but mostly local. And they have used metaphors, right? You, you, may, you may know this already. Like the, 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 the scriptures talk about the church being a body, a flock of sheep, branches of a vine, a bride, a temple, a building, a people, a family. Exiles, a holy nation, uh, Josh mentioned in First Peter. A royal priesthood, salt of the earth. Each one of these metaphors are describing the gathered people of God, the unity and the union we have with Christ, but also things like family speaks about our unity with one another. Which brings us to the next. We are under the headship of Christ. A community of regenerated people who now are under... Not over, but under the headship of Christ. Jesus is the ruler of all nations. We are called to be his ambassadors, speaking on his behalf, 2 Corinthians. The church on earth is to represent and to characterize and portray the king of kings with the coming kingdom. And the gathered assembly represents Christ's rule and reign as we submit to his headship until that day we are with him face to face. We are strangers, Peter says, and aliens of this nation until that day Revelation says where the kingdoms of this world will become what? The kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That day will come. But now we bow our knee to King Jesus. And we call all people to repent and bow to King Jesus. He's the king and he's the head of the church. Ephesians 2. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and himself, Jesus it's Savior. Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. I'm going to build my church, Jesus said. I'm not thinking about it. I'm not going to try. We'll see how things go. I will build my church. He is Lord over the church, and he will build his church. And therefore, Christ, as the head of his church is the sole ruler of the church. You know, in America, we don't like dictatorships. We don't like this one person rules over all the people. Okay? We don't like that. But in some sense, we better get used to it. Because there's going to be no vote when Jesus comes back. Yeah, I wouldn't. You know what? Another day. Somebody else. Not going to happen. Christ is king, he is Lord, he is master, he is the head of the church and does what he wants. We are called to bow our knee to him. Jonathan Edwards writes this, King Jesus is the head of the church and those who are in his kingdom of grace all acknowledge the same king, the same rightful sovereign and are willing to be subjected to him, submit to him and submit to his will and yield obedience to his commands, end quote. Headship, preeminence, superiority, supremacy, authority. Lightfoot says this, The head is the inspiring, ruling, guiding, combining, sustaining power, the mainspring of its activity, the center of its unity, and the seat of its life. That's, end quote. That's the end. That is what headship is. But headship also means responsibility. We see that in Ephesians. 
Adam failed in his responsibility to obey God. And therefore, we are all implicated in his failure. That, that's how headship works. God made a covenant with Adam. Adam failed miserably. And Romans 5.12 says that since sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's headship. Adam was responsible for those under his headship, and those who are under his headship are implicated by his sin, and therefore all have sinned. But yet Christ, as the head of the church, steps in. While we were still sinners, he dies an atoning death. He bears our penalty for our sin, bears the wrath we deserve, dies in our place and for our sins. As the head of the church, his perfect life, his atoning death implicates us in his victory. His righteousness by faith imputed to us and what he has done, just as Adam has done, now we're all sinners. What Christ has done, we are all in him made righteous. Our sins were imputed to him. And by faith in Christ, in his person and work, his righteousness, his perfect life, not yours, you don't have one, is imputed to us and we receive Forgiveness, righteousness, his righteousness, and we are reconciled to God. 1 Corinthians 15, for since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. And for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, spiritually, eternally. And what that tells us is that in Adam the whole race human race fell into sin, and in Christ, all those who are in Christ are eternally redeemed. He's the head of the covenant. The human covenant is Christ the head of the redemption covenant. And therefore, we take our marching orders from Christ. He's king and he's Lord. If you love me, Jesus said, you will what? Obey me. And the primary way in which we submit to the headship of Christ, under the headship of Christ, is submitting to what? The authority of Scripture. To deny the, the, the veracity of his word. To deny his truthfulness of his word. To deny or replace or diminish the clarity of his word. We have attacked his glorious headship. And churches who re- neglect the word or, 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 or don't submit to the word. Christ's not head of that church. So-called church. Because he's always the head of the church. But that church has, has been separated Jesus is the word who became flesh. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture. At first, he, yeah, he, he's talking about the, the New Testament wasn't written yet, but the New Testament fits this now. All scripture is breathed out by God, exhaled by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Jesus asked the Father in John 17 to sanctify us, the people of God. Set them apart. Deliver them from the dominion of darkness and deliver them to the, to the dominion or, or the authority and the kingdom of his beloved Son. Sanctify them by the truth, for thy word is truth. A church, an assembly, a gathering who recognizes and acknowledges Jesus as the head of the church submits to the word. It's the center and source of life in the congregation. 
God's promises to his people in the word of God, in the scriptures, create and sustain his people. Maybe you heard this statement before in your life. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. The Bible is our sole authority for faith and practice. That's a common way of saying that we have the scriptures have authority over us. Or maybe you heard that it is the final authority. The gathering, the church must declare their commitment to the written word of God and their independence from other sources, other authorities. Not to say that they don't exist. They have authority in our lives. But the scripture, the word of God, has final authority. It's been given to us by God. First Peter says that it's, excuse me, second Peter, it has been inspired or carried along by men and it's been breathed out. We saw in second Timothy, God's word carries God's authority because it is he who has spoken. So the reformers cry for sola scriptura doesn't mean there aren't other authorities we should listen to, but in the final day, the alone, uh, the scriptures have final authority alone. It is the authority that rules over and governs all other authorities. And the church declares God's word as our guide, what we believe as, as our way in which we not only believe, but what we do. So that's where that terminology comes, faith and practice. And let me tell you, we're at a place in our culture... Um, where we're going to be challenged, family. Now, we need to stand on the Word of God, and I don't mean that in an arrogant, self-righteous way. I, I just have to say that. But there's going to come a time where we need to humbly and lovingly stand on issues that are going on in our culture, whether it's marriage, whether it's gender, whether it's justice. We have to have a biblical worldview, And when a church takes a stance on Scripture as the only and final, excuse me, as the final rule of faith and practice, it helps us and keeps us from what Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Psalm 119, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. So we are a gathering, a community, of redeemed and regenerated people under the headship of Christ who submit to the authority of Scripture and, and see, believe and confess Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. That we confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. First Corinthians, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in or by the Holy Spirit. Now, there was a man named Polycarp, a uh, second century bishop, a bishop of Smyrna. Uh, he was actually a disciple and was mentored by the Apostle John. When he was 86 years old, he was brought under uh, Roman authorities and was ordered to confess that Caesar is Lord. That Caesar is Lord. And although if he did confess that, that he would have saved his life, he chose not to, and he was killed. He was murdered. You see, in antiquity, uh, it was not unusual to refer to Caesar, the king, as Lord, or Greek word is kuros. Now, the word Lord could mean sir, it could be polite, uh, referring to your master. But in the New Testament, many times, uh, the word was used as someone who had deity. And in that day, the emperor, uh, the, the, the Caesars, were given that title, Lord, meaning divine 
entity or a divine person. And Polycarp was a man of faith, a man of conviction. He knew he could not call Caesar Lord without violating the most basic tenet of the faith, that Jesus is Lord. And when the church confesses Jesus is Lord, what we're saying is Jesus is God who became flesh and dwelt among us. In fact, the Old Testament Septuagint, which is the Old Testament uh, uh, Hebrew scriptures that have been translated into the Greek, Old Testament Greek uh, uh, scriptures, the word kuros many times is, is translated from the Hebrew word Yahweh. And we see that in the New Testament that Jesus called Lord the same way God is called Lord or Yahweh in the Old Testament. We see that in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 2, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, God in the flesh to the glory of God the Father. And early Christians like Polycarp were murdered because they would not profess or confess Jesus Christ as Lord and that they would only bow their knee and they said, if we call anyone else by that name, we are violating our conscience and, and lying to you and not believing what we believe. And in the same way, not only is Jesus Lord, but we need to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, meaning he's the only means of salvation. He's the only way Man and women can be forgiven of their sins and be reconciled, sinners, reconciled to a holy God. Acts chapter 4 verse 12, there is salvation, no one else. No one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way. Singular and exclusive, the truth. Singular and exclusive and the life. And the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The church, this community of God's people are marked out by their confession. And this may seem like, that's a no-brainer, Pastor. We're in a, we're in a, we're in a church. There are a lot of churches that don't believe that. They call so-called churches. They don't confess that Jesus is Lord, God of the universe, and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, and no man can be saved but by Him. They don't believe that. In fact, at the men's retreat we had back in September, we showed a movie back in September. We are in September, a few weeks ago. The American Gospel, Christ Crucified. And there was a wide opener to many of the men that were there. Because there are people that call themselves church folk or, or Christians who don't believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. <laughs> that he is the way of salvation and the only way. And that his death on the cross, his, his dying for our sins in our place, absorbing the wrath we deserve, is foolishness to believe. In fact, they call it child abuse. So-called Christians. The exclusivity of Christ is under attack in the church. In our pluralistic, postmodern, and individualistic culture, it's under attack to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the only Lord. Jesus Christ saves men uh, 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 from a holy God. To insist that is to be called ignorant. And again, I'm not, I'm not talking about getting in people's faces. I'm saying... Confession for the church, for the people of God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the way of salvation. First Timothy 2.5 For there is one God. Not five, not six. There is one God. And there is one mediator between God and man, and that man is Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. The church has and must continue to insist on the uniqueness, exclusivity of Christ, to save sinners. We invite every people to come. 
but Christ alone is our salvation. He alone is qualified to save, and he alone is the redeemer that God has sent to the world. And as a church, whoop, can you go back one for me? See, as this proclamation is being made, we are to organize on the qualified biblical leadership. One of the things you will find in the New Testament, as Paul is on mission, declaring and demonstrating the gospel, churches are being uh, birthed and, and they're being formed in these different cities. One of the things you'll find in there that Paul's concern was that they, he would get qualified men to lead the churches that are being planted. He told Titus, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely if any man be above approach, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching that he may be able to refute those who contradict sound doctrine. Contradict sound doctrine. So one of the things that leaders are to do, we use the word elder and pastor as synonymous because they are synonymous in Scripture. And so really it's just a way of teaching the congregation. We say a lot of times you'll see pastor elder with a a slash meaning one office because we believe pastor elder and overseer, it's one office in, 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 in uh, the Word of God. You see that in Titus. You see that in Timothy. Um, and one of the things that we are called to do as we organize underqualified biblical leadership is, well, there's four things. The, the first two things is, as you see here, protecting the flock from false teachers. We need to, we need to refute sound doctrine, you know, to contradict uh, and to refute those who contradict sound doctrine. So we are to protect the flock. But we're also to feed the flock of God. We also teach and preach the word. As, as Paul was leaving um, in Asia Minor, he gathered a church together in Acts chapter 20, the Ephesian church. And he said, be on, God for your, be on guard for yourselves and for the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit made you the overseer, the elder, the, the oversight. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come. They'll come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, our own selves, look, our own men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. The pastor elders who are, who are, we find a qualification in 1 Timothy and in Titus, um, are to shepherd and protect the flock. They are to be able to teach and preach the word of God. They are to know sound doctrine. Because in large part, part of the job of the pastor elders is to shepherd the flock by feeding the flock. Not beating the flock, but feeding the flock. Teaching the truth of God plainly. Confronting those who would, would bring in heresy and turmoil with false teaching. They also, not only to feed and to protect, they're supposed to lead the flock. The Bible language, when it talks about shepherding, it's talking about governing Paul writes to the, to the leaders, let the elders who rule, it means to lead or direct or to manage, let those who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, 1 Timothy 5, 17. We're to lead, we're to direct, we're to govern, we're to manage the flock of God. First, uh, excuse me, Titus 1, 7, Paul insists that a prospective elder be morally and spiritually above reproach. Because he's what? He's God's steward. It's God's church. We've, the pastoral team has been given uh, authority under his authority to shepherd and to care for the people of God. First Timothy 3 says they ought to love their wives, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, 
gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, manages house well, with dignity, keeping his children under submission. That's the qualified leadership. Feed the flock, protect the flock, lead the flock, and then care for the flock. James says, listen, if, listen, elder, if you're sick in a congregation, gather the elders together if you're sick. Let them pray for you, anoint them with oil. Let, let them anoint you. Paul uh, 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 in Ephesians also tells him to, to take care of the weak and the needy in the flock. It is our job and it's the church's job leadership to care for the people in the church, to care for their well-being. The second role, which we're not going to get into, is deacons and deaconess. They are to serve the church under the leadership of the pastor, elder, and congregation. Um, we won't get into time because we don't have time that, but they are to serve that's what diakonos means, to minister to the physical, practical, spiritual needs of the church under the congregation's guise and the oversight of the elders. So we are to gather regenerated believers under the headship of Christ, the authority of Scripture, believe and confess Christ is Lord and Savior, organized under qualified biblical leadership, and finally, E, gather regularly for the preaching and teaching and worship. Now, There is no such thing. There is no such thing in the New Testament where a Christian, I'm a Christian, does not belong to and gather regularly with a local body of believers. Sorry to tell you. In the New Testament, there are numerous verses that show how believers were identified with other believers. The local church is defined as a gathering of people. Acts chapter 6, verse 3. The church in Jerusalem is told to hold an election. Right? Chose seven men among you. Not among them, but among you. Acts chapter 11, verse 26. Barnabas and Saul met with the church. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. Acts 14, 27. They gathered together the church. Acts 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul gathered the church in Antioch to report all that was God was doing. And the church appointed him to go back to Jerusalem to deal with what people were teaching, the false teaching and saved by, by the law. When they got to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles. And when they had made their decision, the whole church chose men to go with Paul and Barnabas. Being part of a church body is really not up for debate for believers. Not connected to a local body of believers completely foreign to Scripture. It's not an option and actually can be rebellion if rejected. Now, there are times where people are looking for a church. That's not what I'm talking about. There are times when it's biblically right to leave a church. I'm not talking about that either. But we are commanded to gather together. We don't have an option to go, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. No such thing in the New Testament. No such thing. No such thing. We're commanded to gather together. And gathering together, I hear this too. Well, me and my wife and my grandpa get together every, you know, Saturday night. That's not the church. Not the church. You may be part of a church, but we just said it's under the headship, authority, confess, organize, qualified biblical leadership, gather regularly. We're going to look next week at, at the Lord's Supper. At bat. There, there are more things than just you all having a, a game of Scrabble. Okay? I'm sorry to tell you. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And I'm not against Scrabble. Just saying. 
Let us consider how to stir up one another with love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're continuing to care for one another, meet together, worship together, fellowship together for mutual encouragement. I want to be careful, but I want to be loving. I want to be truthful. There are times in the church, in the history of the church, that meeting was either impossible or meeting was postponed. Anybody remember that? We just went through a pandemic and we stopped meeting for a while. But make no mistake, a local church is an assembly. And if a church never meets, it is not a church. Gathering as the church is not simply something we do, be the church as we do. Our assembly in part is what the church is. God has saved us as individuals to be a corporate body, an assembly. And there are times we're forced to refrain from gathering. I get that. And we're still the church when we disperse as we look to ways to love and care for one another. I mean, during the beginning of this pandemic, we used technology, FaceTime, Zoom, Skype, wonderful gifts. Use it to the fullest that you can, but it has limits. Technology fails miserably as a replacement for genuine fellowship and for community. Social media is good. Text messages, phone calls, video chats, all should leave us wanting, leaving us for a longing to be together. They allow us to communicate, stay connected, but it's not the same thing as face-to-face joy that we have face-to-face experiencing relationships and fellowship. Listen, God created us to be together. God created us to be in community. Why? Because we're part of the Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God. God is one in three persons. He created us to be together in one body, but with many parts. 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Our, he talks about the eyes and the ears and the hands are all working together, to playing a part in the body's growth and the mission of the ecclesia, the church. Yes, even at a distance, we're still the body, right? So when we scatter, we're still the body. I don't go on vacation and think I'm not the pastor anymore. But like any healthy body or any healthy family, we shouldn't stay dislocated. A church is more than a gathering, of course. It gathers, then scatters, and regathers again. What you see in our church, we gather on Sunday, we regather in homes throughout the week, and then we scatter as missionaries into the world. And there's something very spiritually enriching and gratifying and rewarding when we sing together, we learn together, we hear the Word of God preached together. I love to talk to my wife on the phone when I'm away, but nothing compares to a face-to-face conversation that I look at her in her eyes. And I have to say this, and we've said this before, if there's no longing to reunite with the church in person, it may be an indication of something else going on. By insisting that the church is non-essential and can function without gathering is an attempt to reduce the significance and to redefine the nature, purpose, and mission of the church. So to debate whether we are essential or not, let me say this with full biblical authority. The church is the only institution, the only gathering of people that will last. Every government, every civilization, every organization, every business, every corporation is limited and will vanish. It is the church of Jesus Christ who is, is, that is eternal, preaching an eternal message. I'm not saying scripture doesn't even say that man's institution doesn't exist. We have laws, we have institutions, governments and organizations, and they exist under the sovereign permission of God. But in the end, 
the final verdict, the ultimate decision flows from our obedience to God. We are commanded to regularly gather for preaching, teaching, and worship. Technology is good, but it can't replace God's design for growing. And if we truly believe that Jesus is Lord of his church, then we need to hear his voice. His word needs to be preached. His word needs to be preached, his word needs to be proclaimed, and we need to be taught accurately, systematically, and unrelentingly. Unrelentingly. First, Second Timothy 4, Paul tells the young pastor, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. I'm glad to say that the two passages before me take seriously the preaching of God's word. The preaching of God's word is not culturally bound. It is preaching that is being done throughout the church, throughout the ages, both Old and New Testament. And in order to, in, in order to understand the word of God, we need it being preached and taught in our gathering as a means of worship. And let me say this as we conclude. Two more minutes. The essence of worship here at King's Chapel, the essence of worship, is a response to the, to the holiness and the glory and the beauty and the majesty of who God is. <laughs> the, the glory that is due him because he is radically otherness than us. He has infinite beauty, infinite value. And as the word of God is preached, is the essential way we see God. He reveals himself. Our response is worship and praise and adoration and thanksgiving. He reveals himself and we respond. John Piper, if worship is meant to be spiritual communion with God and reverent, loving response to God, then at the heart of worship must be the revelation of God himself. And he has ordained to be known mainly by his word, end quote. Preaching and teaching is critical part of the church. It correlates and corrects and, and, and teaches about worship and communion with God. Watered-down preaching will produce watered-down folks. A strong church has preaching and teaching will have strong people. As the band comes up, as we conclude, the Word of God is what makes us strong. It is the central act of worship is preached through the word of God. Calvin said this, word is not preached and heard, there is no church. Martin Luther said the highest worship of God is the preaching of his word. So as we gather together, let's listen to the word of God and let's worship the word of God, excuse me, the God of the word as we open our hearts to the supreme act of worship. Now, I'll conclude with this. You may be home. You may not be able to return yet. You may need to continue to, to exercise caution for you, yourself, and for those you love. Awesome. Keep watching from a distance. But the time will come where all God's people will have to deal with gathering again in obedience to the command and the designs of God. I'm not playing the Holy Spirit. I'm not telling you if you're home watching or it's your first time back, I'm not going to play the Holy Spirit. I want to lovingly shepherd your soul by thinking through the nature and the purpose of the church to encourage you, to exhort you. If you cannot join because it's still unsafe to do so, please stay home. But I would ask, is there a longing? Is there a longing in your soul to gather together 
to hear the preaching of the word, to be part of the family of God as we gather together, singing together, worshiping together, encouraging one another, loving one another, serving one another, stirring one another up with love and good deeds. That would be my question. I'm not trying to tell you what to do, what to, how to be safe and not to be safe. That's between you and the Lord. We're just going to check our hearts, where our hearts are at. Where our hearts are at. I think that's, a, I think that's an okay question. I think that's an okay question. Let's stand together as we worship. Father, we are yours. You have called us out of this world as your people by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We do not take this as something that could, should, be, should be made, or we should make us, that should make us arrogant, uh, but, but, but grateful and humble. And we just want to worship you and love people. And we want to proclaim and demonstrate the good news of the gospel to all people. And Lord, we pray as your people, as your church, that we would gather together and worship you. In, in truth and in spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.